Welcome to another episode of Passing Judgment, a podcast for people interested in politics and the law. Most of the time, there'll be plenty of fun and irreverence to go around. Today, we're tackling a more serious topic. We're going to talk about issues of racial injustice with my friend, Mr. Mo Kelly. Mo is a radio and television commentator. He specializes in politics and current affairs. We've appeared together on television and radio many times. It's always a pleasure. Right now, he's heard on weekends as host of the three-time award-winning The Mo Kelly Show on the number one news and talk station in America, KFI AM 640, and on iHeartRadio. Mo is also a featured commentator regarding American affairs for BBC Radio International. You can regularly see him on CNN, CNN International, HLN, Fox 11, Los Angeles, Spectrum and SoCal, and many other places. Mr. Mo Kelly, I am so glad that you are here and joining us on Passing Judgment. Thank you. Professor Levinson, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I'm overjoyed to be here with you. I consider you not only a friend, but someone who I highly respect on any number of issues. So thank you for having me. So Mr. Mo Kelly, I want to talk about something that I know you've been talking a lot about, which is the taking down of the Confederate statutes. And this seems to directly go to this issue of there are people who support keeping the statues up. They say it's a part of our history. And then there are people who say, these are just racist symbols, and it's 2020, and how on earth can we support this? So can you talk about how this became news now? The statues didn't suddenly arrive last week or last month or last decade. And why has this taken so long? Part of it is, it's not a new issue, if only because at least within African-American circles, it's always been an issue, even from the moment that they were constructed or erected. That has always been the case, and that includes the Confederate flag. That includes, um, I would say, corollary issues such as Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's and those types of things. They have always been deemed offensive within the African-American community. But specifically, with the Confederate monuments, when people say it's about heritage or history, it is misleading. It is a specious argument. On its face, that sounds admirable, but it's inaccurate. The history of the Confederate monuments is inextricably linked to not only slavery, but Jim Crow and segregation. Most of these monuments were built during segregation in specific locations as a specific reminder and threat to African-Americans to intimidate them, to let them know that even though the war is over and even though slavery is over, the subjugation of segregation was still there. The, the ominous threat of the South and it rising again was always there. And that was the specific purpose of these monuments. And the monuments, any monument, or any statue, they're not neutral. So when you say that it's about history, that's not the case. History arguably is supposed to be neutral in how it is constructed in the sense of the facts and the figures of what, who, where, when, why, and how. When you have a monument, you're literally placing on a pedestal in terms of reverence, these individuals and these events. When in actuality, historically, in an unbiased account, 
They were traitors to the union. They tried to overthrow the American government, and they were antithetical to all the deals, uh, all the ideals of this American democracy experiment. So with these Confederate monuments, you're actually denying actual history, and then you're romanticizing an, an idea of the Confederacy, which is fundamentally not true, and also a part of the further, at least emotional, enslavement of African Americans. Those monuments are not telling you history. They're actually bleaching what the Confederacy was, the point of those actual statues. And nobody learned about Robert E. Lee from a statue. No one learned anything about any Confederate general from a statue. And none of those monuments include actually what they were or what those people did. It doesn't say anything about lynching. It doesn't say anything about the time in which... Uh, African-Americans were set on fire and hung from a tree and with for the men, they had the genitalia cut off and, and stuffed in their mouths. None of that is on those monuments. That is why they are antithetical to actual history. That is why African-Americans have always, always wanted them gone. And now we're at a moment where people are at least paying attention and understanding some of the reasons why. So, Mr. Mo Kelly, is there any place for these Confederate statutes in museums? I mean, is there a point that people have that we should be able to literally point to those statutes and say, this is what we used to do. This is who some of us used to be. And have it in, you know, displayed not on their own. As you said, you know, nobody heard about uh, the Civil War because of Robert E. Lee, uh, because of looking at the statute. But is there a place to remind us of who we used to be and that maybe some of us still are there? Absolutely. I mean, a museum is a place to do that. And it also gives a more even handed account of what people did and, and their contributions. It's not like we know of Dr. King now because he has a statue on the Washington Mall. It's not like we learned about Washington, George Washington, because there's a great obelisk on the National Mall or the Lincoln Memorial. We learned about Abraham Lincoln. It's a false choice to suggest that our history is inextricably linked to a physical structure and that structure only. There is a way that we can preserve, I would say, the antebellum Southern tradition, if you want to call it that, and all the people and players and, and those contributions of those individuals and it's not all negative. It's it's not all nasty, but it has to be put in the correct context of what the Confederacy was, what they were fighting for, who they were fighting for. And the best place to do that is an actual museum. You're not destroying the history. You're putting it in its proper context and you're not romanticizing what it actually is. And we do this in other situations, too. You can... Um you can visit a concentration camp, the relics of a concentration camp, um, as part of a museum, not as part of a statute that you would just pass uh, in your normal life on your way to the market, on your way to the bank, on your way to work. And so I think what you're saying, which makes a lot of sense, is context really matters. And I want to stay on this issue of what should we be focused on for a minute, because you just mentioned it briefly. Uh, you talked about the recent uh, backlash where uh, corporations are changing the name of Uncle Ben's Rice or of Aunt Jemima. And 
Um, you posted on social media and you said, I'm paraphrasing you, but you said some version of, you know, the American awakening to Juneteenth is very cute. I think you used the word cute. And you said, but eyes on the prize. So what should we be focused on? This moment, what we're going through right now, all ties back to George Floyd. And George Floyd is the latest in a string of deaths in regard to police brutality. The issue which has ignited people all across the country is specifically connected to the long history of unlawful police engagement, brutalization of African-Americans by law enforcement. The issue has been that fundamentally going back to the Rodney King riots of 1992, going back to the Watts riots of 1965. No number of changing the names of football teams like the Washington Redskins, no change of the packaging of Aunt Jemima or Uncle Ben's, no number of black or African-American actors to replace the white actors who are acting on The Simpsons, no amount of trinkets of paltry affection that are being doled out right now will help address that primary issue. And sometimes we can be so distracted or inundated by all these other things competing for our attention, trying to concentrate on Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's and the Washington Redskins and the Confederate monuments. You lose sight of the fact that people are actually dying. And the whole point of people marching was not to get a pancake mix and syrup mix or a rice company to change their packaging. That's corporate executives realizing the mood of the moment, but they have no vested interests in changing laws or legislation or keeping people alive. They are reflexive to what the mood is and they will do what they think is best for their shareholders or their revenue. That has nothing to do with police brutality. That has nothing to do with the types of conversations that I enter into with young African-American men explaining to them how they need to be wary of how they carry themselves and how they engage with law enforcement. Aunt Jemima is not going to help you. Uncle Ben's is not going to change the tenor of these interactions. It's not going to change any legislation, any policies, any practices by law enforcement. Keep your eyes on the price because that's the chief issue. Because if you don't address that, then anything around it, no number of Confederate monuments being turn, uh, torn down, no number of team name changes will help if you don't address that primary issue. And then when you have another incident, like you have Elijah McCain, another hashtag, in two weeks, you're going to be mad all over again. And you're mad because you will not have made any progress towards that ultimate goal that you should have been uh, pursuing prior to that moment. I have to tell you, when you said another hashtag about somebody who died or was murdered, um, it's it's hard. I mean, and for me, and I don't navigate the world as uh, somebody who's vulnerable to police brutality at all. And you said something, again, I think it was on social media about defunding the police that I thought was really important, that it's not a good slogan but it, it should be taken to mean something else. What should we be working towards? I loved what you said about we shouldn't be focused on a corporation doing what corporations should do, which is 
try and maximize shareholder value. That's good for the economy, but that is a business judgment, which is essentially what I hear you saying, that corporations are reading the room and they're making a business judgment. But that's separate from addressing what I hear you talking about, which is the much bigger issues. Um, So what should we be saying, you think, instead of defund the police? And what should we actually be doing, not just saying? Part of the problem is not everything can be boiled down into a neat slogan. Not everything can be conveyed in a sentence. And I think it does the complexity of the issue a disservice, although well-intentioned, but trying to find a slogan in this world of social media, find a slogan which best conveys what needs to be done. If I were to give some sentences which would better highlight or elucidate what needs to be done, you could say maybe demilitarize the police or encourage a degree of de-escalation. There's a, there's a many-pronged attack to this. There is uh, about what happens when an officer happens on scene and encounters African-Americans. And there is what precedes that or leads to that encounter. It includes when white women are calling the police on black people for no criminal reason, for no real discernible reason. They're not necessarily in a dangerous situation, but they are implicitly aware of what may happen when the police do arrive on scene and then engage the African-American under the preconceived notion that there may be a crime going on or there is something violent which may happen or this woman is in danger. So it's not just one thing. It's not just the actions of the police, but it's also our conception of what a police officer is supposed to do. There used to be a time in which there was more of a community relationship between officers and citizens going back to protecting and serving. Now it's gotten to be almost like a military presence in many African-American communities, and they are supposed to watch over them in a way which is more like a military um, Um, in an occupied area as opposed to members of the community protecting and serving. But going back to defund the police, I thought it was a very wrongheaded approach to it because not only is it not clear in what it means, or some people even say abolish the police. It, it, if you have to explain it and you don't understand it from just a slogan, then a slogan is doing more harm than good. And defund the police doesn't mean take all the money from police. And it's not for me to explain what it is because I've heard seven or eight different explanations of what defund the police means, which just kind of makes my point. But I do know this. I am not for defunding the police. I am for, though, demilitarizing the police. I am for better constructing the relationship and better use of the resources, which may go into how police departments engage with communities. I am for reconstructing as far as the expectations, the engagement practices. I I am for all of that. I don't think that it's just a matter of having less money available for the police department. We get a better police force. I don't believe that at all. I believe it's much more complex and complicated than that. It's going to require something more than a simple slogan to explain to people, hey, maybe we're focusing our resources in the wrong place. May it be it should not be about more police or it should not be about more military gear or more riot gear, but more of a way of developing communities and relationships where it's not as adversarial going forward. 
And you just nailed it, right? It takes a few sentences or more to explain defund the police, and it actually doesn't have a universal explanation. And so this is kind of politics or political campaigning 101. If it takes you that long, you've lost it. You know, you've lost the battle uh, that you need a slogan that really uh, people can latch onto. And now I want to ask you a question that's difficult for me to ask because we're all a product of our own experiences. So I obviously navigate the world as a, a white woman with an obviously Jewish last name, which is very different from navigating the world as an African-American man. Um, when the protests began, we're both in uh, Southern California. When the protests began, I felt very strongly that the police officers um, who, or the police officer who killed George Floyd had done something inexcusable. And I felt strongly that not every police officer is racist, that not every police officer think about, I'm thinking about Los Angeles where I know police officers, that there were many police officers in Los Angeles, for instance, which is really the only place I can speak to with any authority, who were horrified by what they saw, who go to work every day and try their best. But tell me if this isn't your experience or tell me if I'm missing something, which is a long way of saying, I certainly see systemic problems throughout our country. And I certainly know that there are problems with respect to law enforcement. I certainly have the sense that not every member of law enforcement and not frankly, the majority of members of law enforcement um, are trying to implement a racist agenda. No, I don't feel that at all. And, and my experiences with law enforcement have changed over the years just because I'm a, in a different age demographic and I'm less likely ostensibly to have engagements with the police as opposed to when I was in my 20s and maybe going out and being out and about more often. But here's the fundamental fact that I think people miss. It's not that whether there is a majority of police officers who are acting this way, even if it's the minority, and I do believe that it is, it takes civilian video. It takes an outcry. It takes a protest. It takes sometimes riots. It takes civil unrest to bring about the arrests of the people who, by all accounts from what we've seen with George Floyd, just to get them arrested. And here's the real uncomfortable part about civil unrest. You can go back through history. Most of the time, change does not happen without civil unrest. Kneeling by Colin Kaepernick did not get us here. It was the actual civil unrest. Those officers in Minnesota would not have been arrested if not for the civil unrest. We had the medical examiner and the county prosecutor who were all ready to say that George Floyd did not die for reasons of homicide and that the county prosecutor had said, the prosecutor said that he had seen exculpatory evidence. Who says that as a prosecutor? I don't know. But the probable cause existed in that videotape. 
And yet that was not enough for an arrest. We saw the arrest report. They lied on the arrest report. All these things were working against the Floyd family to get justice. And going back to your question, this may not be indicative of most police officers or most police departments, but it is in alignment with a very distinct history as far as the treatment of African-Americans. You mentioned hashtags. I can tell you about John Crawford who went into a Walmart and was playing with a toy gun in the state of Ohio, open carry state. And then someone had called the police saying they thought they had an active shooter at Walmart while he was playing with a toy gun in the toy section who came in and shot John Crawford on site. I can tell you about Tamir Rice, who was a 12 year old kid playing with a toy gun in a park in an open carry state, also Ohio, and the police happened upon him, drove up right up next to him and shot him after one command and two seconds, unable to respond. I can tell you about Renisha McBride. I can tell you about Victor White in Louisiana who was handcuffed, hands behind his back, and all of a sudden, he was found dead in the back of, back of a police car, and the police said he managed to somehow shoot himself in the chest with a gun while his hands were handcuffed behind his back. I mean, there are so many people. I could tell you about uh, Stephon Clark in California, um, Kendrick McDade in Pasadena, Samuel DeBose in Cincinnati, and you don't get arrests of these officers. And so it's not a matter of whether there's an inordinate amount or there's a prevalence of these officers. There is an inordinate amount of injustice in which African-Americans have to deal with regarding these types of situations. And so when you have civil unrest regarding George Floyd. It's not just about George Floyd. It's about all these other hashtags that many other people don't know, did not care about, but are still fundamentally linked and tied to George Floyd in the string of things. You're hearing more about Breonna Taylor in Louisville. And this is not uh, unusual for us as far as police acting in an unlawful way and not being arrested. But you have officers who have not been arrested, who on a no-knock warrant came into a house looking for her boyfriend, not her, ended up shooting her some eight times. She dies. They lied on the police report saying that she had no observable injuries. And still to this day, none of those officers have been arrested. They've been fired, but not arrested. And that speaks to the historical timeline of why there's this, this, um, difficult relationship between law enforcement and African-Americans. It's never just about one person. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's not a one off in on either side. And I have to tell you, it again, just took my breath away to hear you detail very quickly all of the people and incidents in very recent history. Um, and it, it often does take what that phone in your pocket to make a difference. I mean, this comes back all the way to the Rodney King beating in the early 90s, where if there hadn't been somebody with a video camera, I don't think that um, that would have become a flashpoint. That would have just been another day. And um, I really appreciate the nuance that you brought to this in the sense that um, it's certainly it's not every police officer, it's not every member of law enforcement, and certainly there is a disproportionate member of the members of the African-American community who are subject to unacceptable treatment. And I don't know where that leads us other than for me to thank you for educating people and ask, do you think on the state level or on the federal level, is there a 
politician or organization that you can point to and say, I think they have it about right. I think that they're working towards uh, the right ends, or I think they're explaining this in the right way. I think it varies. I don't know if there's one organization, but there are some cities, Los Angeles included, who manage to do things better than other cities. I've long said you cannot ask prosecutors, at least on a local level or county level, to work with law enforcement on a daily basis and then turn around the next week, if need be, and arrest those same officers from the same department that they've been working with. It's counterintuitive. There should be, in terms of, if you say, if there's something that can be done federally, it, it should be that if there is a police shooting, it should be investigated by an independent prosecutor, maybe with civilian oversight. Because if anything, that, I'll say, would at least um, even out the scales. It doesn't tip the balance in favor of the officers, given that they already have an implied assumption of telling the truth, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you also have a sympathetic prosecutor, it makes it even more difficult to get any type of arrest or prosecution, even though it may be warranted. So the first thing I would recommend is you would have some sort of civilian oversight and an independent prosecutor. Certain cities are better at that than others. Um, Los Angeles PD, LAPD, they have civilian oversight. Their practices are uh, created in conjunction with community and civic leaders. Not all police departments do that. So LAPD is way ahead of other police departments. And maybe that's a function of what happened after the Rampart scandal scandal, and also the Rodney King scandal. But I don't know if there's a single organization, but to address this problem, it has to be local in nature. There are Mm -hmm. some, I don't know, I don't know how many thousands of police departments and police officers in America, maybe like 180,000 police officers, there's not going to be one size that fits all. And the issues may be Ahmad Arbery in Georgia with, I would say, law enforcement adjacent individuals. It's not going to be the same as far as prosecution of them as opposed to prosecuting an actual officer. So you need to have laws in place where the benefit of the doubt is not automatically given to the officer because we know if there was video of me doing what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd, I would have been arrested on the spot. In fact, there need not be video and I would have been arrested on the spot. But since officers are held to a higher standard positively and negatively and given the benefit of the doubt, we need the video, we need all these other things. And then also we need to um, overcome the implicit bias of a prosecutor who was just working with that police department the day before to prosecute those same officers. We need to be able to remove those obstacles if we're actually going to have a justice system in which people who are wrongly treated by the police have a real shot at justice. So... I like to end giving the listeners a bit of a resource guide. We talked about some really difficult issues. Um, There's no way to make light of that. There's no way to make it more fun. But maybe there's a way for us to try and do something about that. And so let's try and focus on the federal level for a moment. Is there one bit of reform? And I I know it's kind of unfair to ask about one, but let's start with one for now and we'll have you back. Is there one piece of reform that you'd like to see on the federal level to address some of the problems that we've talked about today? It would be 
it would be obviously police reform or health care. That's about the only thing that I think that really touches people from coast to coast on some level, regardless of age, regardless of demographic, um, a, a much better structured justice system as it relates to policing, at least as far as what a federal legislation can do, which is not much. But if something can be done as far as sentencing or something can be done when officers may not act within the lawful code that the federal government can intervene beyond just what they can do right now. If there's a, a hate crime or a civil rights violation, if something can be written into the code to give the federal government more autonomy to insert themselves when if something may happen in Georgia or Cincinnati or California and not usurp the 10th amendment, I'd be for that. Mr. Mo Kelly, you have educated us a great deal. And now I want to learn a little bit more about you. I want to take a turn towards uh, the lighter side for a moment. And I am in the habit on this podcast of asking my guests the same three questions. So if you'll indulge me, first sure. question, which famous person, dead or alive, would you like to invite to a dinner party and why? It would be Jesus Christ. It would be just that simple. If only because I want to know um, who are you more angry at? The people that you came here to save and then they ended up killing you and you died for them or are you more mad at God for sending you in the first place when he could have handled it himself? That would be the first person. Second question. You're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal with you. What is that meal? Ooh, just one. I probably would, I probably would bring French toast. It's one of the few meals I think I'm going to miss when I'm gone from this world. It's something I've actually and actively thought about. French toast with some brown sugar, just a little bit too much syrup. Um, yeah. That I would think be I, I speak for all the listeners when I say we can literally taste that right now. And mm, yeah, la last question, you have one superpower for one hour. What is it? Invisibility. Yeah, that makes sense given our conversation. For good reasons and bad, invisibility. Mr. Mo Kelly, thank you for your time. You've educated the listeners. You've educated me. It's always a pleasure being on with you. And this time, really, it was a pleasure to be able to hear more from you than our typical quick segments, you know, either seven minutes on the radio or three to four minutes on TV. I'm really glad that we got to spend a little bit more time together. I hope that we'll be lucky enough to have you back in the future. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Jessica, I love you and there's nothing that you can do about it. And I'm at your service whenever you need me. You can find Mr. Mo Kelly on Twitter at Mr. Mo Kelly. You can read more about him on his website, mrmokelly.com. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Thank you.